0: At the center of that uh, beautiful anthem about what we remember this time of year, uh, Christ's suffering, death, eventually his resurrection, was the phrase, uh, let me live for thee. And that's what we mean here at Chapel Street when we say that we want to experience grace, grow in faith, and make an impact where we are. And today I want to mention something that we as a church family are taking on as a way to make an impact from where we are to where some very precious other people live in the world. Every year, you may remember, we choose a partner or a project somewhere in the world to bless at this time of the year, the Easter season, with our prayers and our financial support. You may remember a Bible translation project a couple of years ago or Life Water Wells in Africa. But this year, we've decided to partner with a ministry called Compassion International, in particular in the country of Ecuador, where we have a long-standing connection through our mission teams and student ministries. And we have a short video uh, that you can watch to help you understand what compassion is all about. So take a look.
1: Growing up as a child, life was very hard. And many of the times that if we didn't have food, then we would go to in the in the dumping sites.
2: I didn't have food the day before, neither the other day before. I only knew that I was hungry and I needed
1: food. As a child I grew up with a lot of hopelessness and I knew that death was the best thing for me.
3: At the age of seven, I lost three family members. I lost my mom and I lost my stepdad. I lost my small brother Patrick because of the terrifying disease of HIV AIDS.
2: in the middle of prostitution. Feeling
1: so helpless. Poverty made me feel less valued. It made me feel not loved. It made me feel uh, less of a human.
3: Because it's so hard when you have not eaten dinner and knowing you not have lunch and you're not assured for dinner the following day, it's just feeling very helpless, like things are not gonna be
1: better. I lost four of my siblings due to preventable diseases. Uh, Three of them, Charlie uh, died before the age of five. My sister, we were sleeping with her in the same bed and she, she had died. Things changed later when I joined the program.
2: When I started attending the Compassion Project, I was learning about the Bible. But the most important thing for me was that I was receiving food.
1: I got an opportunity to go to school. Uh, with a pair of school uniform, with a pair of shoes.
2: My mother heard about a church that work with children. They're taking care of me, tutors, a pastor, a compassion director. Words are very powerful. My life was changed because someone told me, I believe in you, I love you, and I know you will succeed in life. My sponsor was a college student from Michigan. And in the first letter, She just told me that she wanted to make room for me.
3: My sponsor, he was eight years old when I was nine, so he was one year younger than me. One decision to make room for one more changed my life. Saved my life.
2: Saved my life.
3: Will you make room for a child that needs you? Will you make room for one more? It's up to you.
1: My name is Raphael.
3: My name is David. My life
2: was changed by a 26 years old college student. Her name is Joanne. Gail and Roger. Her name is Jamie.
3: My sponsor made room for one more.
2: And that one more.
3: And that one more was me.
2: Was me sponsor a child through Compassion today.
3: Release a child from poverty, in Jesus' name.
2: In Jesus' name.
3: In
1: Jesus' name.
0: Uh, compassion International um, helps children around the world who are impoverished uh, have not only food, um, but to get the education that they need and connects their, them and their family to a local church. So it's really a project that's right up our alley as far as what we believe in as a church. We learned, uh, our surf World team learned about a month ago or so, that there are roughly 500 unsponsored children in Ecuador. And we have a long-standing relationship with Ecuador, as many of you know. And so our leadership uh, determined that we were going to, as a church, try to take on as many of those 500 children as we possibly could across all four of our campuses and try to cover uh, every remaining unsponsored child in the country of Ecuador. Now, that's a big task, but we've allotted the different children to each of our campuses. Uh, we have the, the uh, display out in the lobby. It'll be there for three weeks today, next week, and then Easter Sunday, so you have time to think about it and to learn more about it, but here's how it works. There are packets like this. Uh, this young woman's name is Marilla, Marilia, and inside the packet, you have information about her, her family, And then there's a tear-off portion at the bottom where you can include your name and then your your credit card or your uh, debit card information, or you can write a check. Um, And we ask that as you go out there today and start looking at these uh, children to not take a packet with you because that takes them out of the out of the project but just look at it and if you decide to take on a child uh, you can do that right here today or you can wait and do it next week or even on easter sunday morning but just know that when you take on a child you you have them that you are their only sponsor and it's $38 a month, which so is a little more than a dollar a day. You provide them with school, with food, and connect them to a church. And then you, you have their name. And you can write to them. They can write back to you. So it's building a relationship over time. It's a different kind of project than we've been involved with before. So, so we want to let you know that we are taking this on for three weeks. We have a goal set as a church. We're trying to reach all 500 of these children uh, across our campuses. So stop by today. Learn more about it. You can ask questions. You can even do pick up a child and, and make the commitment today if you are ready, and we'll be out there uh, by the tables to help you do that, and just uh, after the service. Uh, Now let's let's, uh, bow in prayer before we uh, hear from Pastor Joe. Lord God, we thank you today for uh, blessing us so much as a church family and as a campus family, and we thank you for your love, we thank you for what we celebrate this time of the year as we turn our eyes toward um, Calvary, toward uh, the events that we remember that stand right at the center of our faith. Uh, your, your death, your resurrection, and, and all that means to us. We thank you for this opportunity we have with compassion. Uh, we know that there is suffering in the world. We know there are children in the world that need to know your love and your grace, and we want to be a part of that. So um, open our hearts to the possibility and let each make a decision that's right for them as we move through these next couple of weeks. Now, Lord, we ask you, I ask you to bless Pastor Joe. Uh, with uh, your spirit as he brings uh, your word to us and help us to hear and listen so that we can understand. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
4: Amen. Thanks, Brian. And uh, so excited that we're able to partner with Compassion in this way. I'm excited to be with you. It's been a while, and so it's good to be back here at the South Street Campus. Uh, Many of you know this. My wife, Judy, and I recently became parents. Um, Our son, Luca, was born a few months ago. And before I start, let me just say, those of you that have been reaching out, asking, praying for us, it, it means so much. We're so grateful that we have a church family that loves us and loves our son. Uh, I remember when Judy was pregnant, I was uh, talking with her, and we had a conversation kind of talking about just, you know, how we were going to do everything, how we were going to split up, you know, who's going to do what, who's going to, you know, do the, the feedings and changings and getting up in the middle of the night, and, and I remember telling her that I wanted to do as much as she did, that she could count on me. It was 50-50. I'm not going to be like some dads that let the mom do all the work. I, I can do it too. Uh, Recently our our son has been uh, doing something where he wakes up in the middle of the night and he doesn't want food He doesn't need to be changed. He just wants comfort. He just wants to be held And one night recently in in particular this happened and and it was my turn to do this And so it's like four in the morning. It's i'm exhausted and i'm cold But it's my turn. So judy turns to me and says are you going to go get him? And I say yes, and I, I start trying to get up, and, and the next thing I know, I look over, and she is holding him and just giving me like a death stare. <laughs> and, and I asked her what happened. You ever, you ever like sense rage from someone? That was so, so I asked her what happened, she said, well, you fell asleep, and you wouldn't get back up, so I had to do it. I'm reminded by something we saw Jesus say last week, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. We have uh, just a few weeks left in this series on the book of uh, Mark that we started all the way back in the fall as we're approaching Easter Sunday. We've been looking at Jesus' life and his ministry and, and really the question of, of what it means to follow the king. What does it mean for us to be part of this kingdom that he has come to establish? And, and at this point in the story, if you've been tracking with us recently, we're in some, some of the final hours of Jesus' life. If you were here last week, in fact, you might remember that we we looked at this moment where Jesus takes his disciples, and he goes to this garden of Gethsemane, and he prays, and he anguishes, and he feels the weight of the sin that he was about to bear and become. We saw him pray this, this beautiful and dangerous prayer, Father, not my will, but yours be done. This prayer that strengthened him to carry out his purpose, this prayer of surrender and trust. We left things off with these words from Jesus to his disciples. He told them, Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. If you're familiar with the story, you you know what happens next. That Judas, one of Jesus' twelve closest followers, identifies and betray him, betrays him, That, that Jesus is arrested and led to the high priest to be put on trial, and in that trial he reveals himself to be the Christ, the Messiah. He's set on this course that leads directly to the cross. Today, though, the passage that we look to is not directly focused on Jesus, but on someone who would consider himself his most loyal follower, as we look to the story of Peter and his denial of Christ in the courtyard. Peter, who has declared to Jesus over and over again that, I love you and I'm completely devoted to you. Peter, who just moments ago in our story has cut the ear off of a servant in the garden. Peter, who's been present for some of Jesus' most incredible moments, who would go on to be one of the most important leaders in the history of the church. And yet, in this moment, what we see from Peter is the same thing that I saw in myself that night with my wife. His spirit willing, but his flesh weak. And here in this moment, he is left dealing with the consequences of that. And so we're going to see three major movements in this story for Peter. We're going to see his drift, his denial, and his despair. So let's start with Peter's drift. Turn with me, if you have a Bible with you, to Mark chapter 14. Uh, We're going to start in verse 66. It says this, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, real quick, just for clarity's sake, uh, below in the courtyard, maybe that's kind of like why was he below somewhere, uh, they're at the home of the high priest, which kind of is the, the first century version of, of a mansion. So it was this gated area, and there was this home with multiple stories. Jesus was on in one of the upper rooms, and Peter was below inside the gates in the courtyard where the workers would be. Okay, so he was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him. And said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Uh, when I was in college, I spent a, a summer living in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I was working for a youth missions organization where each week different youth groups would come from around the country and they would do uh, service projects in the city. And so part of my job was coordinating all of these projects, and we would take students to these various work sites around the city, and, and each week we would have up to 100 students or so. So it was a lot of coordinating to do, and what we would do is take these big caravans of you know, church vans and buses and cars, and we would, try to get as, as, uh, we would try to get stay together as we go to these different sites. I don't know if you've ever been to Atlanta, uh, but if you've ever driven in Atlanta, it makes people who drive in Chicago like they know what they're doing, which is saying something. Um, and so what we would do is we'd drive around the city, and, and we just have these line of vehicles. And what I would do is I would have these drivers, before we left, come together. This was around the time where we were deciding if we trusted the GPSs on our phone. And so I would tell them, "Well, here's what you're going to do. What you do is stay as close as you can to the car in front of you. Just like get right on their bumper, even if you're going to run a red light, even if you're going to disrupt traffic, just stay as close as possible. Because I knew that the moment our line of vehicles got separated, my job would become impossible. And the further away that we were, the harder it was to get us where we needed to be. Stay as close as possible. That's the same advice that I would have given to Peter that night in the garden. Now, if you know the story, it's easy for us to look at Peter and and the disciples and what they do that night and his denial of his teacher. And, And it's easy, maybe, to be a little bit judgmental, isn't it? To think, how could you do that? Why would you do that? But imagine, for just a moment, that you were one of those disciples that night. Think about the whirlwind of things that just happened in their lives. They just shared the Passover meal where they were supposed to remember the Exodus and what God has done. And instead, Jesus talks about the fact that he's going to sacrifice himself and that they're all going to abandon him. We looked at this a few weeks ago, how Peter speaks up in verse 29 saying that I would never do that. Even if everybody else falls away, I would rather die with you instead. Jesus gives them this warning this warning that we see play out in our story today. And yet, soon enough, Peter has a chance to make good on that promise. We're told in verse 47 when they come to arrest Jesus that he is ready to fight, ready to protect his Savior, cutting the ear off of one of the men. He's ready to go to war on behalf of his teacher. But then something happens. Something happens that I think broke the spirit, not just of Peter, but of all who followed Jesus. We're told that they come to arrest Jesus in the garden, that Judas identifies him, and and then the crowds closed in, which has happened many times in Jesus' life before. But this time, something different happened. Jesus, who had slipped away from so many crowds, who had used power that he had shown over and over again, who who used uh, his intelligence to outsmart and outwit those same people earlier that week, didn't do any of those things. He allowed himself to be arrested, taken away to be killed. We see this in one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. In verse 50, we're told that everyone left him and fled. So within hours, Peter has gone from, Jesus, I will never leave you, to, I don't know what you're talking about. How does a person get there? How do we get there and just a matter of hours? Was it isolation from his friends? Was it confusion about what was going on? Was it disillusionment, thinking I thought I knew Jesus, but maybe I don't? Was it fear? Legitimate fear that what happened to Jesus would happen to him as well? I think all these things probably contributed in some way or another, but, but look with me first to verses 53 and 54 of our story. It says they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And then look at this. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, did you catch that? Did you notice the one thing that Peter did that he has never done before? He followed Jesus from a distance. Now, Peter's been following Jesus for a while now, and he's made plenty of mistakes but he's never done this. Never before has his longing to follow Jesus been held back with the desire to keep himself safe. And this is where Peter's drift begins. I had a basketball coach who who told us once after we lost a game that we lost the game before we even woke up that day. In other words, what he told us is that we lost, not because of how we played that day, but because of how we practiced the week before. And our lack of focus and our lack of discipline in practice led to our failure in the game. We saw the reverse of this last week, how Jesus' victory on the cross was determined not in front of crowds, but in this quiet moment of prayer with his heavenly Father, when he determines to surrender himself to his will. And in the same way, Peter's failure, and oftentimes our failures as well, are not determined in the moment, but in the habits that we build, the lives that we lead, when no one else is looking. The truth is that Jesus was not the only person on trial that night. It's fascinating how Mark structures this passage, how he kind of goes back and forth between what's going on with Peter and what's going on with Jesus. He ties these two together, not just in the timeline, but also in what is happening to each of these men. And so we see this contrast between Jesus, who surrendered his life to his father in the garden, accused of something that was not true, remaining strong, and Peter, who fell asleep in the garden, accused of something that was true, giving in to fear. This is what happens here, that that Peter, in his fear or his isolation or his confusion, separates himself from Jesus. First, physically in the garden, and then verbally here in the courtyard saying, I don't know what you're talking about, and then physically once more in verse 68, retreating to the gateway, all before the first rooster crows. This is the nature of temptation, isn't it? That oftentimes the mistakes that we make, the the times that we mess up are the result of a period of drifting in our faith. Drifting physically away from this community of faith, away from the church, away from this group of people to encourage us and keep us accountable. Drifting verbally away from time in prayer and in his word to surrender ourselves to his will. Drifting towards safety. Wanting, like Peter, to follow Jesus, but maybe afraid of what it might cost. I remember talking to someone about the uh, Chapel Street bumper stickers. You've seen those before? Maybe you have one. Um, And he he told me that he didn't want one of those bumper stickers because the way that he drives would drive people away from the church. (laughs) Apparently, he didn't want to cut people off in the name of Jesus. I don't know. And it made me laugh, uh, but it also made me think. It made me think how many of us are afraid to associate ourselves with Jesus because of the way that we live our lives, not wanting to tarnish his reputation. For others, maybe the opposite is true. Maybe you hesitate to say that you're one of those Christians, one of those church people, because you don't want to be thought of differently. You don't want to be judged more harshly. We don't want to be made fun of, or even in some cases, m- mistreated. Friends, this is what Peter shows us here. That just like in the highways of Atlanta, following Jesus at a distance will always lead to us making a wrong turn. We have two choices we can follow Jesus with all that is within us, or we can drift away. That brings us to the second movement of our story. We see Peter's denial. Peter's denial. Uh, Many of us, I'm sure, have been following and praying about what's going on um, in the country of Ukraine and and the hurt and the death and the devastation that we've seen in that country. Uh, When I was in high school, my my church actually went on a mission trip to Ukraine. Uh, We went there to help teach an English camp for Ukrainian students, and, and it's been heartbreaking just to read and hear stories from some of the friends that we made on that trip about what's going on. I remember, though, while we were there, uh, walking around the city that we were staying in, and people would look at us, and without us saying anything to them, they would walk up to us, and they would just say, Americans, and then they would walk away. It wasn't a a question. They didn't want to talk anymore. They just wanted to say, Americans, and then they kept walking. I remember asking one of the the missionaries that we were working with how how they knew, how they knew where we were from, and, and he told us that it was our clothes. It was the fact that I was wearing a baseball hat. It was our volume, it was our attitudes, even the distance that we kept between each other. All of these were clues that told them not just that we weren't from their country, but that we were from ours. It was fascinating. And yet here, it's also what we see happen to Peter. Look at this next part of our story. It tells us, The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he, again, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So here we see the result of Peter's drift, that he finds himself in this situation that's, that's quickly getting more and more serious, where all of a sudden it's not just one servant accusing him, but a whole crowd. A crowd, we can assume, we can guess, that might even include the same people who just arrested Jesus. We see here that two more times people in this crowd come to Peter saying, certainly you are one of them. It's not even a question. Just look at yourself. Just hearing you talk, seeing you act, we can tell that you are one of those people connected to Jesus. You're one of those Jesus people. We can tell you're from Galilee, that you're from up north. It's as clear as it would be for us here in Geneva if someone came and they were wearing a cowboy hat and they called us y'all. We would know that they're from the south. As clear as it was to those Ukrainians that we were from the U.S. It was undeniable that Peter was one of those Jesus people. Here's a question I've been wrestling with all week, and I'm going to pass it on to you. How long does it take for the people in your life and in mine to understand that you are one of those Jesus people, too? What makes it undeniable, not even a question, when we go out today, when we go to brunch after service, and we go to work tomorrow, when we see our neighbors and our friends, what makes it clear for those people to connect us to Jesus? I remember in middle school, my my youth pastor teaching us about evangelism, and he he encouraged us to think about a friend that we knew that we could invite uh, to our next big youth event, and so I started working up the courage to invite my friend, Tim. Uh, We were good friends, uh, but he seemed like someone that could use Jesus. You ever have a friend like that? Like, I love you, but you're a mess. Um, That was Tim. And so I'm mustering up the courage to do this, uh, but I keep putting it off because I'm worried and I'm awkward and I'm scared and until one day Tim comes to me, and he asks if I wanted to go to his church. You see, apparently Tim's youth pastor also was telling him the same thing, and he thought that I was someone who needed some Jesus. Now, we were really good friends. Like, we hung out all the time. Uh, we were both Christians, and yet you would have never known it based on what we said to each other, how we treated each other. And how we treated other people as well. By the way, Tim ended up coming to my church, so I won. <laughs> what about you, though? Would it surprise people, based on the words that you use, the things that you do, the way that you treat others, that you are one of those Jesus people, too? We're told that again and again, people keep coming to Peter and, and stating what is obvious, what is clear to everyone. It would be easy for us to read this and and miss the tension that is growing in this scene. Try to imagine this. Peter first being accused by, by one servant, by one girl, and then him saying in verse 68, I don't know nor understand what you mean. Here Peter is using language that a person would use in a legal defense. Kind of like if I told you that you are committing perjury. And picture this. He moves toward a different part of the grounds, and time goes on, and word starts to spread, and more and more people are starting to get suspicious. Clearly, this guy is not from around here. And again, Peter denies this claim. More time goes on. And at this point, Peter's life is in true danger. And again, we have to note that there's something within him. There's still some longing that he has, this commitment that he has to Jesus. He doesn't want to leave him, even when his life is in danger until this third accusation, when again someone comes to him, and this time Peter does something drastic. We're told in verse 71 that Peter invokes a curse on himself. Now, this isn't a a cuss word that he used, as some people have claimed before, but but literally Peter telling these people, may God strike me down and destroy me if I am not telling the truth. So there's a sense of just incredible tension and also incredible irony that all of this is happening as Jesus is on trial, as Jesus is being accused of blasphemy, preparing to be sentenced to death. And here in this moment, Peter has failed his own trial. So why does this matter? How should this conversation, this moment, this time, change the way that we live. Certainly, there might be times where where someone will come to you and say, are you a Christian? Are you one of those Jesus followers? And certainly, there are instructions for us in that time, and maybe there will even be a time where that question comes with a cost. We know that for people all around the world, that is their reality, a reminder for us of the needs of our fellow, fellow Christ followers, and also of our need to be ready. But more than that, what we see here from Peter is a a pattern that I think many of us are tempted to fall into. What we see here is this, that the fear of others rather than God will always lead to denial of God rather than self. The fear of others rather than God always leads to denial of God rather than self. This is what Jesus said back in Mark chapter 8, that to follow Jesus is to deny yourself, to pick up your cross, to follow him. And yet this is the nature of fear, what we see in Peter's life and maybe what we see in our own, that it is really hard to carry both your cross and your fear. Fear has a habit of shifting our focus away from God and towards our own interests, our own safety, our own protection. I've shared this before, but I I think if Jesus walked through our doors today, if he spent time not just with our church, but with the church, or at least the American church, I think this might be one of the things he would say the most. Why are you so afraid? He says it over and over. We see it all throughout Scripture. Do not fear. Why have you allowed your fear of what other people think? your fear that you don't measure up, your fear of the future for your life or for your family's life. Rule so much about what you do. Friends, too often we get this backwards. We're like Peter. We fear others and we deny God. And he has called us to the exact opposite thing. His word is clear. His commandments are clear. Fear God, deny yourself, and trust him with the rest. Let me see the last piece of the story. We see Peter's despair. Look with, the last, look with me to the last verse of the story in verse 72. It says, Immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, You will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter breaks down. He cries. Literally, the, the language tells us that he threw himself down overcome with emotion. He's reminded of what Jesus had said just hours before. Isn't this such a human moment? Haven't we all been here? At least I know I have, just overcome by the weight of something that we've done, wishing we could turn back time and do it all over again. Now, the first time you read this story, it seems like this is how the story of Peter is going to end. This is where Mark leaves him as he moves on to Jesus being put on the cross, we see him weeping on the ground in that courtyard, unable to fulfill the promise that he made to the one that he loved so much. And yet, this is the grace of God, that just as Jesus' story does not end on the cross, neither does Peter's story end in the courtyard. In fact, we're told after the resurrection of Jesus that he appears at least twice to Peter, and if today you find yourself living in the weight of guilt or of shame or of regret because of something that you have done, this last part of his story is for you. We're told in John chapter 21 that Peter had returned to the only other thing that he knew besides following a rabbi around. He was fishing, fishing with some of the other disciples until Jesus shows up on the shore one day and they share a meal together. And then what happens is what is referred to as the public restoration of Peter. Where in front of the other disciples, this Jesus that has been resurrected and has conquered the weight of sin and of death, asks him this question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times he asks him that question. Why three times? Well, three times Peter has just denied Jesus. Three times he fell asleep in the garden. And here, three times, Peter is reminded of what we need to remember as well that we are not defined by our drifting or our denial, not defined by the shame that we feel and the mistakes that we've made. If you are in Christ, this is the question that Jesus asks you. He doesn't ask you, Will you stop messing up already? He doesn't ask you, will you feel guilty because it feels like that's what you should feel? He doesn't even ask you, will you apologize for what you have done? He says, do you love me? If today you are following the king, this is what matters. You are not defined by your shortcomings, but by love. The love that you have for Jesus, but more importantly, the love that he has for you. See, it was love that restored Peter that day on the beach. It was love that empowered him, strengthened him, fueled him to become one of the most important leaders in the biggest global movement in history. It was love that allowed him to bring countless people to faith. It was love that gave him the courage to do in his old age what he was afraid to do in his youth, to not just fight for Christ, but to be willing to die for him, too. Joining so many of his fellow disciples and being martyred for his faith. Love restored Peter. And this is the hope of the gospel. I Maybe mean, today you've had your own courtyard experience. A time of drifting. Maybe even a time of denying. Maybe you feel the weight of past mistakes. Maybe you feel like you're too far gone. For God to forgive. Maybe today you need to be restored, not by your own righteousness, but by his. You are not defined by what you have done or the shame that you feel or the hurt that you've caused. You are defined by, marked by, made new by love. So let's follow him. Follow him in the freedom that love offers you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you now reminded of our need for you. We're reminded of our need for the cross, for the celebration of Easter Sunday. Lord, I pray now for those that are finding themselves drifting or denying in their faith that you would bring us back to your love. God, empower us to follow you, to fear you and to deny ourselves. And to trust you with the rest. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
0: The question we are asked by the Lord is, Do you love me? And we understand that we can only ask uh, answer that question because He's first loved us. And that's what the bread and the cup are all about. Uh, so, in a moment, we're going to pass out the trays. Please understand that this table does not belong to this church, it belongs to the Lord. So, even if you're visiting with us for the first time, if you've put your faith in the Lord, Jesus, as your Savior, then please share with us the bread and the cup. And there are two cups stacked together in each spot. P- please pick them both up and hold them until everybody's received. Then I'll lead us through the remembrance. Let's pray. Lord, again, we uh, come to you today remembering your great love for us. And as we take bread and cup, we are expressing our love for you. And help us to experience again the grace of your forgiveness and the hope of your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture tells us that on the same night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus met with his disciples around the table and he took bread and blessed it and broke it and said, take and eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of him. After the bread, he also poured the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of your sin. The Apostle Paul reminds us later that each time we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Do this in remembrance of him.